0: Well guys, it's good to be back together and um, good to open the word with you guys in a series called uh, Darkness and Dawn, which is from the prophecy that's found earlier on in the book of Matthew that talks about how in the land of Zebulun, uh, the way by the sea, the the people who were dwelling in darkness, those who dwelled in deep darkness, a light has dawned. And we know that that's talking about Jesus. And so the question we're asking is, what does it look like for dawn to actually come into the darkness of earth? Um, All of the earth has been affected by the fall. (laughs) By the fall. Is that me? Sorry. Just making sure you're awake. Just make sure you're awake. All of creation has been affected by the fall, whether that be relationships, whether it be our own souls, whether it be the fabric of our moral character and our ability to carry out what we want to do, or even the fact that leaves fall out of the trees as they die. All of the earth has been affected by the fall. And so in a way, sin has brought darkness into a very beautiful world that God has actually created to be filled with light. And so it is, that's the end of all of creation is Jesus comes and makes his kingdom here on earth and there is no need for the sun because he, he becomes the light that sheds goodness throughout the whole earth. But now, between now and then, we find that uh, human history dwells outside of the light and into the outer darkness where there is challenges, where at times we find ourselves weeping and gnashing our teeth, so to speak, as we live outside of God's perfect world in order, yet Jesus comes. He ventures outside of his perfectly kept world into the midst of the darkness, and he meets the people who are weeping and gnashing, and he tries to bring his light into their world. Now, this story, it talks about uh, some very real spiritual forces. If you look at it, it's most of your Bibles, it's titled, Jesus Heals the Many. Is that what you guys have? Look in your Bibles. Do you guys have Bibles? You guys like the Bible? I like the Bible. Uh, Extra points if it's paper. Good job. Yeah, mine says, Jesus heals many. And so it almost brings the focus of this whole paragraph to the idea that Jesus, all these people being carted to him and these demon-oppressed people and the way that he just loved and extended healing was the centerpiece. In fact, though Matthew selects, intentionally, if you look at the three previous stories, including this one, uh, we have a woman, and before that we had a centurion, and before that we had a leper. So the outcast, the Gentile, and the female, these are people who are socially outcasts. They aren't able to have the same influence in culture. Why was Matthew so determined to highlight the fact that Jesus pursued the outsiders, the ones that no one expected to? Well, man, this lands deep and close to, to uh, uh, sorry Matthew's heart because we know that Matthew himself writes himself into the story. If you look into chapter 9, Jesus walks by a tax collector's booth. Guess who's behind the table? The despised, despicable tax collector, Matthew. And so it is that the, the very meeting of Jesus for Matthew transformed the way that he viewed the story of Jesus. And so when he penned the gospel, he intentionally wrote about these intimate moments where Jesus is seeking out those who all of society were not seeking after themselves. And so for us, instead of just looking at the demoniacs who were actually healed by Jesus, the many, after the sunset, we're going to look. During the day of that same miracle, which is within this text, and this lady, she isn't named. She's only re- referenced by her relationship. Um, it is Peter's mother in law. And so when we look at the text, it's, it's important to me that we kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the different characters. I love to watch, or sorry, excuse me, I love to visualize the stories of Scripture. I love narrative because you can step into it and you can go, what was that like for, for for the mother-in-law, for Jesus, for Peter? Peter invites Jesus over to his home. They'd just been in synagogue, and so this was the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be working. And so uh, you, you, after Sabbath or synagogue, they go to Peter's house, which is very close. If you go to uh, Capernaum, it's probably about 100 feet away from the um, synagogue. And so above this house that they believe was Peter and his wife's and mother-in-law's house, there's a church that's built over top of it. Jason, you remember this? Me and Jason were in Israel together not long ago. Well, it's been a long time now. It doesn't feel like it. But you actually, the church is built above it, and you can um, go, and there's a glass floor, and you can look down into the house where this miracle actually took place. It's actually fascinating. And so for us, I want to just take a few minutes to think about the idea of being the mother-in-law being the person that wasn't necessarily the center of attention. I don't know about you, but my middle school years helped me to understand what it was like to be awkward and not fit. Anybody else? Anybody proud of your middle school pictures? No? Nobody? Like, <laughs> Greg. Greg alone. Greg alone. Nah, bring them next week, we'll put them on the screen. Um, <laughs> No like I think Jesus he is so gracious to allow and write into the story people that we can identify because not all of us were class presidents not all of us were the star running backs not all of us were the ones who everybody circulated around and I know some of us in in schools we had people that they were just magnetic, you know, that whatever they did was just like it turned to gold. Everybody laughed and they, you were just drawn to be around them. This wasn't the mother-in-law, no, at least not in this time in her life. You know, when I was thinking about this story, I, I kind of thought about my own middle school years. We had moved from uh, Marysville, Washington to uh, Lebanon, Oregon, which is uh, shotguns and lifted pickup trucks, and uh, we we went to a church plant much like this one. There wasn't a huge children's program, so I was bored out of my mind sitting in the chairs trying not to get into trouble for drawing pictures. And my parents were like, "You can't draw guns in church." Okay, uh, okay, you know what I mean. Like, but I'm just trying not to get into trouble. And so I had ADHD. They tried to put me on the overhead projector. Like, remember that the light thing when you had the a little clear, I don't know. Yes, exactly. Those things are awesome. Yeah. Te- any teachers still use those in here? Anybody? Nothing, no. Yeah, I remember using them. If, you see, <laughs> if you see one of those machines, grab it for me because I'll, I'll use it for art projects, okay? Because they're incredible, okay. Um, anyways, I don't know how I got there, but I, oh, that's right. They put me on the job of keeping the song straight, right? And I was overly active. People were like trying to follow along and I was <laughs> determined to like go line by line. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it was fine. Um, I didn't really fit in, in our church. And although it was a church plant, um, there was I was different. My brother and I, uh, we went to public school, and the predominant number of kids in the church were more homeschooled, and, or they went to Christian school. And so there was this weird, like, didn't-quite-fit thing. They, they all had perfectly parted hair and button-ups, and I had the bowl cut, right? And uh, they would have dress shoes, and I had hiking boots. I'm not sure why hiking boots. Um, I thought my brother was the coolest, and so he liked hiking boots, so I had hiking boots. Um, not only that, uh, this we had this uh, reality where we were at church, and there was just a different feel. The church was kind of built, and we knew that we weren't the only ones that the church was there for. So I was thinking about not fitting at church, and I was thinking about the idea that Uh, Even in my own family, my brother, uh, they didn't know really what ADHD was when I was young, so uh, I was on the cutting edge. Uh, I was studied. Uh, That's right. Um, They took me to a therapist, and my brother had written a book in school, uh, and it actually got published in Psychological Studies. Because it was titled, Why is my brother so mean? And, and the picture of, of the, the, the main title picture was me chasing him with a hammer. And uh, it was this child's view of why and what is going on inside of the psychology of my brother that makes him so off the wall or not really have a whole lot of like um, self-control, right? And so I've come a long way. I uh, keep all the things that I want to do kind of tucked away. Um, but to be honest, they, as they studied and, and looked at that, I, I kind of looked around, and I was like, man, I'm the problem. Like, my mom, she became a duty teacher at my, at my school, and I was like, that's kind of cool, but I was thinking about it today. She probably became a duty teacher to, like, keep me straight, <laughs> like, to not get into trouble, um, and I thought it was going to, you know, be a cool thing to have a mom as a duty teacher. I was like, I can break the rules. No, dude, she gave me more detentions than anybody else. So um, I don't know what she was trying to do. I think she was trying to help me fit in. Thanks, Mom. Being a duty teacher does not work, helping me succeed at school. But just the different ways in life that we can feel on, on the outside. So um, I know that um, about that same time, um, my great-grandfather, his name is uh, Alec Mitchell, my namesake. My middle name is, is Alec, David Alec. Uh, Alec Mitchell, he immigrated from England as a little boy to uh, Alberta, Canada, where he had all of his young year memories, and all of these kid dreams, fishing on this lake, doing this thing, and and I always felt a special connection with, with Al. Um, me and Al uh, kind of just, I had his name, and so I just assumed I was his favorite, and when he was planning on, on taking a trip, he wanted to have like a, a grandson trip, right, and uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, can't wait, it's going to be awesome, and my parents are like, this is what grandpa wants to do, he's going to go up there, he's going to take, take some fishing and all that, that son of a gun picked my older brother, my older brother's name is not Alec, it is Douglas Russell II, named after my dad, I have his name, I didn't get to go on the trip, I was steamed, bro, and so it left me just feeling frustrated, like, man, am I invisible, like, why does my brother get to go, but I don't get to go, could have had something to do with the behavioral issues. I don't know. know. But it left me feeling unchosen, unseen, unwanted, and invisible. It made me feel excluded, like, what's wrong with me? And I don't know what um, it is for you or what your story is, or if you can think back at different moments where you felt like an outsider and you don't know why, or there's been a circumstance that's just been like a shadow cast over your life. But to be honest, when we feel like we're pushed into the background of other people's worlds, it is like living in a shadow living in a shadow of a stigma. Maybe some of us are living our lives trying to overcome a stigma that's associated with our family, our history, our heritage. There may be situations that we've walked through that others are aware of, and we feel the shadow of that being cast over every day. There may be even our personality. Like, we live in the shadow of our personality. We're afraid to put ourselves out there. Maybe even some of us are... Uh, We live in the shadow of our insecurities. We're afraid to be known, to be truly seen, and so we pull away into the darkness. We can also live our lives in the shadow of mistakes or in the shadow of even another person. Some of us tend, I don't know about you, but when I'm not feeling great about myself, I don't want to be the center of attention. I'll, I'll find that wonderful, vivacious Rachel Nightingale to take all the focus, and I'll just kind of be like, I'm good. I don't know if that's you, if you kind of attach yourself to others who can take some of the attention. I find comfort in that, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but what I do know is that we find Peter's mother-in-law in in the shadow of Peter. Who is she? What's her name? What color was her eyes? What, what, What did she like to do? What did she do when she was young? We don't know. There's tons of speculation about it. Some people even think that she's attached to Herod the Great's household. But there's nothing in Scripture that would give us definitive proof of that. And so we're left with the description of Matthew who simply says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. It's quite beautiful to think if, if, if that was the only verse that we had of this woman in all of Scripture. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law. That would be beautiful enough if we were to sit in that story and allow that one line to define our whole life, that when Jesus walks into the room, he sees you. That, that alone. We could close our Bible and be like, I'm just going to meditate on that. Jesus, you see me. Not, not to mention that her life was one that pushed her to the outside of the center that pushed her into the shadows. We know that she was a woman, so in the society she didn't have the same social power or influence or freedom that a male would have. We know that she was likely living with her daughter and her husband because of some circumstances in her life had made it impossible for her to be on their own. We know that she was likely dependent upon the girl that she had raised, and the husband whom she likely had no voice in picking. She was living with them, day in and day out, amidst all the busyness. We know that she had a married daughter, so she was likely older and past her prime when People would be discussing the prettiest ladies in the town or whatever. Her name did not get brought up. When when the the idea of of somebody making a phone call or calling the house, it was probably not for her. It would have been for Peter or her daughter. When Valentine, so to speak, would come along, she wouldn't be the one going out on the date. She'd be babysitting the grandkids in the shadows, present. She in many ways, was a passenger in the life of those around her. It's likely that if she had needs, they wouldn't have been automatically detectable by the key people in the house. So she could have been ill without others knowing it, in a way that if she was the center, the matriarch, that it would have been very predominant. It's interesting to think that not only her current day in, day out was likely tied to them, her destiny was tied to her daughter and son-in-law. Have you ever found the idea where we tie ourselves to others and we find that like they're driving the ship and I don't have the ability to control where we're going and I have to trust this person? It can be very scary, especially if you have trust issues. We don't know what her history is. We don't know what brought her to this day, but I do know it would be crazy to be dependent upon a guy like Peter. So her welfare was tied to the guy who was impulsive, brash, overconfident at times. Oh, he had a decent fishing company. It had highs and lows, but it at least paid the bills. He had just walked away from that to follow this guy, Messiah. Jesus. Wait, What? Honey, your, your husband, that bonehead, he is unemployed now? Are you kidding me? Like, this is her world, and she finds herself tied. It can be scary. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, which would have been a social taboo. He reached down, and he held her hand, and we're told that the fever Left her. I wonder what it was like for her to have Jesus show up after church and she was not at her best. She was not looking great. She was sweaty. She was feeling sick. She was stuck in bed. And this guy shows up and the house is full with his disciples. Now I'm supposed to entertain, like, wouldn't that be overwhelming? I would have been frustrated if I was her. I would have been a little miffed. Like, hey, don't you know that I'm ill? Like, what? you're so unthoughtful, Peter, to bring him here now. Like, come on. And so it is that we see that many times the fear of being seen in weakness, it makes you and me run to the darkness. It, it keeps people at a distance. No, let me bring you a meal. No, we're fine. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're good. Any prayer requests? No. Nah. In the darkness we stay. Yet Jesus did not let her stay in the darkness. He didn't let her hide. It says that he grabbed her by the hand and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. I've always been curious about that. In the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels that talk about the same story, Matthew alone highlights the fact that she doesn't merely serve them. It is more intimate. She serves him. And so it is that as Jesus didn't need in Matthew's account to be told that she was sick, he saw her, healed her, and she served him. There is this binding together. That actually uprooted her central orientation. That was once around unpredictable Peter. It now became around Jesus, the the man who once looked after her, likely out of obligation socially. Okay, like uh, we we have to take care of mom. The the kindness she would have guessed like is it out of obligation? Do you love me? Like do you care about me? She she would have likely been bummed that like she didn't have anybody pursuing her likely. Yet we see when Jesus becomes the centerpiece for her new life, it's not out of obligation that he touched her hand and loved her. He was gracious and pursued her. He chose her. And so this woman that may have felt very unpicked, very on the outside, becomes the center for that moment as Jesus chooses her, loves her, heals her, and she in turn loves him back freely. This idea, the word serve, is diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon from. Um, And it's spoken of many different times in Scripture, but the most important one is the way that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. She saw... Love in Jesus' eyes, received love and healing from Jesus, and in turn, her life was transformed where she had a new source of focus, of hope, of security, and it opened her eyes to the glory of Jesus and gave her a focus for the energy and attention that she had, because she may have been on the outside of the circle, but she was not insignificant. She was not unworthy of Jesus' love. She was not finished, so to speak, or put out to pasture. Jesus brings her into the middle, and she becomes part of his core family. The home of Peter becomes Jesus' base for his ministry. This woman became a regular fixture in the heart of Jesus from this day forward. There was an intimacy here that when Jesus, the light comes into the shadows where she had been living and brings her into the middle of the room and engages with her fully, it allows her to see the glory of Jesus, the hope that no matter what circumstances will say, she is actually called into not merely being healed, but into his intimate relationship service. We are not merely meant to be forgiven as individuals. Jesus forgives and heals us so that we may be brought to life and give life to others. We are brought in and called to image Jesus just as she served as an image of Jesus' service. So we are served by him and then created anew to be servants to the world, to demonstrate who Jesus truly is. This woman, she was uh, liberated from the darkness of feeling outside of God's pleasure. Look at this uh, passage in verse 16. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, she rose and served him. Look at verse 15. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, scene change. Why is this important? That evening? Okay. Sabbath? You're not supposed to go anywhere on Sabbath. You're not supposed to carry people who are demon-possessed to be healed to anybody. You're not supposed to carry someone who's sick to get healed. But when the sun goes down, literally when the darkness fell, Sabbath is over. Then we see that evening they brought to him... uh, To him, many who were oppressed by demons, cast out spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet in Isaiah, he who took our illness and bore our sins. How does that strike some of you? I want you to think that through. All who were sick were healed. All who were sick were healed. I don't know about you, but maybe there's some in here who have been praying for healing and it's never come. And that makes you wonder, like, why is the healing of Jesus not here today? Well, maybe it was just for then. Well, no, this is when he references Isaiah 53, he's referencing what Messiah is like. So what Messiah was like then is what Messiah is like today. Jesus is a healer. He's one who bears our illness and disease and sickness, and he brings healing to our lives. So why do we not see all physical healing? I think it's a tension that we get to walk in, lead a hold. We get to believe that Jesus is good in the midst of uh, things not always working out and being clear in our eyes, but we do need to recognize that Jesus does guarantee healing. He does guarantee healing in his way and in his time that we are not in control of. And as I've said before, future healing, Jesus, we're told what he began in us, he will bring to completion. Future physical healing is going to come when Jesus returns and we get to put on new bodies. And so some of our healing, Jesus says, yes, I'm going to do it. But you get to hold that and faithfully follow me until I return. And only then will I completely heal your body and make it undone as you have experienced your whole life. But it struck me, why, why did Jesus why did Jesus heal the woman in the way that he did? Have you noticed, He touched her by the hand, And what happened? What's the result? I'm actually asking for someone to talk out loud because I feel like I'm talking too much. What happened? Fever left her. Fever left her. Why on earth would Jesus do that? That is the rudest thing he could do. If you know what a fever is, a fever actually is the thing that activates your immune system. A fever is the thing that actually lifts the temperature of your body when there is an internal problem. Fevers are most often caused by infections due to viruses and bacteria. It is the body trying to heal herself. And Jesus is like, fever's gone. Is the virus still there? I think it's intriguing that Matthew says, and the fever left her. Jesus' healing was not for the fever. Jesus' healing was the thing that was at the core of her sickness. The very core of the thing that her body was waving flags at. Jesus' healing is something we need to recognize is internal first, primarily, and it works its way out. That's why it's important for us to make the connection that Jesus' healing work is not primarily or firstly physical. It is firstly spiritual. And that as we are renewed from the inside, sometimes physical healing comes before spiritual healing and it gets the attention of the crowd and it makes us go, whoa, what in the world? But what Jesus guarantees... He doesn't guarantee that you're going to have uh, your cancer go away or that the situation that you long for to be undone. But He does guarantee that He will bring healing to our souls. That His words will be like salve to our broken hearts. That His forgiveness will, will cover and mend and redeem and restore. That He will remake us like we are the beginnings of the eternal new creation. For you have been remade in Christ Jesus. So let us have a more complex understanding of the healing of Jesus. Most often, when you look back at the healing ministry of, of, of God on earth, when, when I look back at the prophets, the healing work that is most often spoken of with Messiah is healing somebody who is blind, spiritually blind, Somebody the, the people who couldn't hear, spiritually hear, so that their eyes could be opened, their hearts could be softened, and they could be saved. So Jesus' primary focus for healing is that our hearts would be able to be awakened to God, respond to God, be made alive to God, and be made uh, back in relationship with Him, and then sent into the world to be diaconates, diaconates, servants of King Jesus to the world. So this story, I think, is more complex than we often look at it. But I do believe that the heart of Jesus is on display. If we were to look at the original quote, because Matthew says, they brought him the many, the demonic, all of those, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed them all who were sick This was to fulfill, verse 17, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He who took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The uh, reference is Isaiah 53, 6. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief, he has carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of us, we were like sheep who have gone astray. And we have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter himself, upon reflecting on Jesus when he wrote his epistle called First Peter, he says this, he himself, this is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to Righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul know this that just as easy as it is for a sheep to wander into the darkness you and i we will have a tendency to wander away from the chief shepherd of our soul when we don't believe that he is good news to our deepest needs. Jesus sees us when he walks into the room. Jesus touches you before you are able to serve him. Before you're able to do a thing for him, he touches you and he brings you back to life. He heals our innards so that we may be engaged in intimacy with Him, and a life of purpose. He sees you, He heals you, and He is reorienting us around Him. Friends, I want to make sure that we don't live in the shadow of anything other than Jesus. If, If there is sin in your past, I don't want you to live in the shadow of that. Jesus has called you into the light If there is shame in your life, I don't want you to live in the shadow of that shame because Jesus shows up in the shameful places and drags you into the center of His love. And He covers our shame. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. How beautiful a gift of Jesus who doesn't just look at those who are gabbing for the attention. He looks at the edges, at those who are dwelling in darkness, those who are comfortable hiding, those who are afraid to draw near to Him. He calls and sees and heals and drags us into relationship with Him, not in a negative way, but in a delightful, healing way. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that God came and found me when it seemed like no one else was looking for me. That he said, you belong with me. When I didn't know if I would ever have a real place. And it's only in that embrace that I've been able to find peace. Find peace in life that I might look at Jesus with the lights turned on and see him for his true goodness that I believe when He looks at me. There isn't frustration in His eyes, but there is adoring love, that there isn't judgment, there is grace. Oh, that Jesus would turn on the lights in our life. Oh, that He would chase away the darkness. Let us be a people who love the light, not love the darkness. Amen.